Okay, friends. So this is a, I don't know, slightly different episode because I haven't planned it. And you might think, well, what's the point in listening if it's not been pre-thought of and planned? And uh, you might then just leave. So bear with me because I do think that this is like stream of consciousness, consciousness kind of thing. And I might end up saying something really awesome. Here we go anyway. The reason I'm, I press record is I just had a conversation. I've actually had two experiences recently that kind of are somewhat aligned. So I want to talk about both of those and my general thoughts on these things. The first one is how much information should we give to brand new facilitators, ropes course uh, operators, practitioners when we're doing an initial training? So let's say new people come in, they're a completely blank slate, They've never done any of this stuff before. How much information should we give? And how much information do we give that is somewhat tied to our own ego? So I mention this not as a negative on other people. I'm only reflecting on myself on this one because I've noticed I've done this. But then I also do think how often does this probably occur? And I'm probably thinking it occurs a bunch that as trainers, there is an accumulation of information that we get over our years of training and there's a little bit of showing off when it's like let me show you this other alternative way so i'm going to remark on two things that i know i have done so the first is i did a workshop with chris Danboys at several conferences on the history of belaying now for that workshop we did a whole bunch of research and we learned some really cool things And it resulted in this workshop that I, as someone who's been in this field for a while, kind of nerded out on, right? Like I was really excited about looking at these and, oh, why do we use an ATC? And why do we not do hands up belaying now? And and those kind of things. And I've been fascinated about them. You've heard that in other episodes where I've, in a previous episode with Steve Woods, I was talking about V to the knee. Because certain, those kind of things I'm kind of fascinated about. So I did that workshop. And people choose to go to that workshop based on the description and say, oh, I'd be interested in the history of belaying. But the issue for me, or the maybe where this becomes an, uh, a problem, is when I take that information that I'm all nerded out on and excited about, and I decide to bring it into trainings um, that I run for clients and people coming to High Five. Now, for a level two more advanced training. I think these kind of things are helpful and cool and they and and it kind of broadens the scope of information that you're able to give to people. But I've used the history of belaying concepts and talked about all of the things and why we use these things with new practitioners and I'm not entirely convinced that's helpful. So I was recently given feedback to this degree, not necessarily on this, but if I'm sharing more than is necessary, is that a hindrance versus helpful? In my head, I have equated additional knowledge as being helpful because it gives people a larger scope of understanding. I'll often say I want people to be thinking practitioners, so therefore they understand the whys behind why we do things and not necessarily not necessarily. I do this because Phil told me. But there is definitely moments and opportunities and experiences where actually only knowing what you need to know is helpful. 
And the giving of more information is actually probably going to be problematic. So let's delve into like, what's the point of an initial training? Like, what's the goal of an initial training? Is the goal of an initial training to have people get to a point where they understand the industry at large? Or is the point of the initial training to get the people, the participants, ready to be able to operate on their course safely and to a level of competency that they are also feeling confident. Because I go back to when I first started, I didn't know any of the stuff I knew now to the degree. I knew how to belay, I knew how to tie a knot. But was that a bad thing or a good thing or somewhere in between? It's like part of my growth, part of my development was not knowing a lot at the start. And I think that honestly, if I was told a bunch of stuff that was outside of the necessary, I'm pretty sure I would have been overwhelmed. I've even been in other trainings in other areas where someone's giving me so much information. I'm like, I don't know what is the valuable stuff and what stuff is the additional stuff. And so why am I bringing this up? I think that I've always mentioned in this podcast, the need, the desire for continuous growth and also critical analysis on the stuff we already do, mining the opposite experiences. And those people who like all the additional information are probably going to be say, oh, that's cool, cool, show me something else. But if I put it out there to the entire group, all right, I'm going to teach you belaying, and as part of teaching belaying, I'm also going to teach you the history of belaying. I'm not entirely sure that really is helpful helpful for everyone in that group. And so I need to be more aware of what is the information I just kind of want to nerd out on and what is the information that is helpful. The other lens I want to add on to this that I think is worthwhile as well is the ego part to it. So I've mentioned before that I experience imposter syndrome, or I have in the past. I still do to a degree, but less so now. But when I first started High Five as a trainer, I felt that I needed to know as much as I possibly could to be a valuable trainer. That I needed to know way more than I was going to teach. And I would like research a bunch of it and think, oh, I'm going to add this into the training. And now that I know that stuff, I want to demonstrate that I know that stuff. So I'm 35 now. When I started as a trainer, I was 26. And I really wanted to prove myself to the point where I'm still trying to do that. If I'm going into a training, I want to show that I'm the expert in the room and that I know what I'm talking about. But if I'm doing that, is that negatively impacting the group? And is it making it more about me? And I think to some degree, it's making it more about me. I want them to know that I know what I'm doing. So I talk way more than is necessary or share stories or share additional information that isn't helpful to their end goal with one of the main aims being to show that I know what I'm talking about. And that may not be for you. Like you may share this stuff and have this thought of like, no, no, I'm sharing this because I think this is helpful for this, this, and this. And in some cases, I think that is true. If people come into a training initially and their hands up belaying, I think it's a completely appropriate and helpful thing to talk about the history of why they shouldn't necessarily be doing that now with a plate style device. That that makes sense. But if no, if everyone is new and I'm teaching the PBUS, do I need to talk about the standing hip belay? Do I need to talk about using a munter hitch? No. There, there's a just a reality. No, I don't need to do that. Why would I do that? Other than to say, look, this is what I know about the industry. So 
I'm looking at this critically and myself. I'm trying to think of like, yeah, I've done this in the past. You've probably been in one of my trainings if you've been in a training where I've probably done this stuff. And so at the time I thought that that was helpful. I can still justify its help and need, but I just want to put it out there to anyone listening. If you're teaching people how to do stuff, figure out what is necessarily for them and don't necess- don't need to teach them ex- everything else. If they're not going to need to know how to tie a bowline, don't teach them the bowline. Try to figure out like what's the essential things that they need and teach those things and teach them to a point where they feel confident and competent. And then if people ask additional things, add that in, but don't add in the additional stuff if it's not necessary. What I'm going to do now is I'm just going to insert an audio of Jim Grout talking about ego and how it relates to trainings. I think that that will be a good combination to this conversation that I've just had or this talk I've just had. Let me start with a with a story. An experience I had, uh, I was probably in my uh, 20s at the time, and I went up to a rock climbing site in the White Mountains, Cathedral Ledge. I was very excited. I didn't know much about rock climbing at the time, and I thought, well, this will be great. And there was me and a friend and then the, the instructor. And as the day went on, I began to realize I was not learning anything from this particular fellow. He was very good at his craft, but what he was good at was showing what he knew, not what we were trying to learn. And it always stuck with me. You know, at the end of the day, I both me and my friend went home uh, a little bit disgruntled, disheartened. And there wasn't a moment in the day that we felt excited to learn about climbing. You know, it was a pretty big cliff, Cathedral Ledge, because the presenter was so stuck on his own ego and his presence, and and in some ways almost showing off what he knew, that it was never really about us as the students trying to learn that. And and over the years, we've all heard so much, you know, people, kids learn from teachers who love them, or we, you know, people in trainings learn from people who care about them. People don't, you know, that you have to be there for them, uh, and people have to recognize that. And I've often felt that the person with the big ego, in in many ways, is, is almost the most unskilled and most dangerous person that I think of as a facilitator. The fellow that we had rock climbing, he wasn't dangerous, but he certainly wasn't, he wasn't nurturing. He wasn't imparting skills to us. And if anything, created an environment where you did not feel an invitation to learn. You really felt an invitation to step back and say, I can't wait till this is over. <laughs> Years ago, I had a person, a camp person in a training here at, at High Five. And very seldom would I ever do this, but at the end of the five days, end up calling the camp director to say, you got to watch out for this person. And they were actually going to be, you know, training, not training, but they were going to be managing the site where they were, which involved a challenge course. But in the course of those five days, I never saw this person once be there for the others. It was sort of all about this person, all about their, their needs, their performing, uh, their ego in many ways. And on a couple of occasions, people almost did get hurt, not in, in big ways, but, you know, rope burns and things like that, because the person was always doing something that was, it was sort of blind, blind to others and called the camp director just to share that. And I, I recall at the time that it was about two weeks later, the camp director called back and said, uh, yep, they're not here anymore. Not a good fit. You think of all the things that folks do to become strong facilitators and, you know, you've got all the tips and tools and things that, you know, try to make you strengthen that. But I think if I were to pare down that piece of it that that is the most, creates the biggest deficiency, 
it would revolve around ego and thinking of yourself and and not thinking thinking of others. We as the language are a lot at high five about you know self others and collective, and it's certainly the way we try to impart stuff to the young people we're working with as well. And it's easy to think of oneself. I mean, it's a pretty natural place to be. But then how do you move on beyond that and think of others and then really think of the collective good? And you know, whether that be in a classroom or a training workshop, you know, learning technical skills or facilitation skills or whatever that might be, that there's always that piece that helps you move on to what others are doing and sort of what the group is experiencing. And it seems like ego is the one thing that, that would continually sort of stops it dead in its tracks and makes it challenging, challenging to do. Over the years, too, I think it's been fascinating to watch people evolve from that. You know, it's natural to be, take some time to get acclimated to the skills that you need to learn. You feel tentative about it, and I think sometimes you're so wrapped up in the experience, it's almost hard to remember what was I supposed to be learning. And I think over, over time, as people get more confident in their skills, they're able to parlay those skills in, the, in so almost the way that they automate them and feel like they've really got them wired and now your whole focus is being there for others and it's if you've got the technical skills wired you're not we're concerned about safety it's just a given you have to do all those things correct but the degree to which you can forget yourself as, as a facilitator and then allow yourself to be there for others at whatever learning level they're they're at i've often uh, shared with the staff here I, I feel like i'm a chameleon at times and i do it very very purposely where I'll try to almost assimilate with the group that I'm I'm working with to become one of them, so to speak. And it could be a group of phys ed teachers. It could be a group of students. It could be a, a police department. It could be a business group. But in each of those settings, if I'm able to not give up myself, but if I'm able to, to really become one of them and kind of engage at their level on their terms, even in their language in some ways, and not be either forcing, you know, my agenda or forcing my personality, but allowing myself to be invited in by them, I think people's learning curves become enormous because now they're they're welcoming you into their little group of whoever they are and allowing you to feel at home with them. And then you're able to really lead them where you want to lead them. And I, I, I think if you start in another place and had someone share a story with me not too long ago, they was a six-hour training or something, and they were just sharing that in the first 30 minutes, they felt that they, they sort of lost the group. And, I, and they were asking me about it. And I said, well, tell me about that. What did you do? And just said, well, I, I think I sort of announced my agenda and what was important to me and sort of who I was as a person and all of that. And, you know, good stuff to know. But to do that in the first 30 minutes, I think almost put that person in, in the trainer position sort of front and center for that group. And I'm sure the message is a little bit, this is a little bit more about me and what is okay and acceptable to me and how we're going to work together as opposed to let the group evolve, let yourself fit in with the group. And then once a group feels like you're part of them, I can guarantee you can lead them places they never thought that they could go. And I feel like time and again, I've seen that with very different kinds of audiences. And it's, it's not giving up your personality but it's making your personality be almost subservient or not not the priority. But how can I be there for you and help you to grow as a person as you're developing whatever you're doing with the group in terms of team development or whatever it might be, your personal development. And then obviously in terms of 
teaching skills and things like that. So when I go back to my rock climbing experience and, and relive it, it's uh, it kind of brings a smile to my face because it was such a good example. I think oftentimes we learn things from those things that didn't go so well. And uh, I came away from that not knowing anything very well about rock climbing, but it always stuck with me as a thing to never do that myself as a trainer. And then also to try to share that with people as I've observed them and to say, hey, here's a thing that I think can get very unproductive if you get a little bit too stuck on yourself. The second thing, and when I think this ties in, is I was recently in a trainer conversation with other trainers, and the the conversation came up about credentialing, trainer credentialing, how we're assessing trainers out in the in the in the world training, like what qualifies us to be trainers. And I just brought up the idea, and I noticed this a lot. I do a lot of workshops, I go to a lot of conferences. I think this is also somewhat tied to ego and this desire to prove a knowledge base is the mentioning of how long you've been doing something. I think this is in every single industry. This is not unique to us. This is a human concern. I don't know, a human issue that we try to prove ourselves by talking about how long we've been doing something. So I was in this meeting and it's, it's a common thing that people will ask, how long have you been doing this? How many years have you been a trainer? How many hours have you trained? Think about the challenge course portfolio. I think to a certain degree, there's a flaw in it. Once you get past a certain number of hours that are required maybe to receive a certificate, the logging of the hours, I don't necessarily know if someone who's gone done a thousand hours and someone who's done 3000 hours, I'm not going to make this judgment call that the 3000 hour person is better than the 1000 hour person. I, d- I just don't necessarily think that hours and years of service equates to expertise and competency. I don't know how we necessarily solve this. I think this is just a common thing, but I just, I put that out there. Just if you go to any uh, conference workshops in the future or do anything and someone says, hey, my name is Phil and I've been doing this X number of years and says the number of years, you have license to just boo. <laughs> no, don't, don't do that. Uh, that would be socially not the correct thing to do. But internally, in your head, silently, maybe you can boo. Because there's two parts to it, right? Like there's the reason people do that. And the reason I do that is because I don't think people think that I know what I'm talking about unless I say that I've been doing this X number of years. Like it, there is a marker of legitimacy when you say this. So it comes both ways. Why do we as a as maybe a client base or maybe those people who are receiving information, if the person said they've only been doing it a, a year and then someone says they've been doing it 10 years, why do we give that person who's done it 10 years so much more respect than that person who's done it one? That person who's done it one might be innovative and coming up with some incredible stuff and also might be really, really skilled. You could have been doing this stuff for 30 years and been doing it bad, right? Like, So I don't necessarily think that the equation of hours and years is a justification for overall experience. I'm jumping on a little bit of a bandwagon. No, jumping on a bandwagon? I don't know. Is that the right phrase? I'm jumping on a trend here. Um, I decided because I was thinking about this to ask somebody else, uh, but no one was available. So what I decided to do instead is I went on to chat GPT. If you don't know what this is and you're hearing me say this for the first time, I apologize, but it's an AI software 
that you can insert information, ask it questions, and it will pump out some answers. And so this is the question I asked. Why do we care about how long someone has been in a profession? And I decided to see what it would say. So this is what chat GPT says in response to that question. The length of time someone has been in a profession can be an indicator of their experience, expertise, and level of knowledge in that field. It is generally considered as a measure of their professional development and can be used to assess their qualifications and skills, making it relevant in many situations, such as hiring, promotions, and performance evaluations. However, it's important to note that length of time in a profession should not be the only factor considered, as other factors such as education, training, and performance may also play a significant role in determining a person's abilities and suitability for a particular role. So that was a pretty freaking good answer from AI, and it highlighted the however part, like the however is important note part, was sort of where I'm going with this. I think that there are plenty of people who've been doing this a long time who are awesome, but I just don't want that to be the benchmark for competency. I do not want the benchmark for competency to be related to amount of time. And I'm always going to go in with a lens of, I want to see proof that this person knows what they're talking about beyond them just saying, because they've been doing this 10 years, I should therefore have the utmost and greatest respect for what they're talking about. I just don't think that's true. I don't think that's true of me. I think I'm continuously trying to grow and learn. And yeah, I'm better than I was like five years ago. But I don't want people just assume that just because I say that I've been doing this longer. Like that doesn't... And also I don't necessarily think that's true for me. I think I'm a good trainer and people tell me I'm a good trainer, but I don't know that compared to others. I haven't seen myself lined up against other people. And not that I should do that either. Like if I'm ultimately giving clients the right content and they're learning and feel competent, then that's awesome. uh, That's a great benchmark for me. And I want to be able to say, you know what? The person I was last year was not as good. And this year I'm, I'm improving, like constant improvement. So I apologize to all the people I've trained in the past, but I'm hoping I'm going to be better in the future for those people I'm going to train in the future. So I think that that's a desire I hope that other people continue to do. And, um, yeah. So there's my my thoughts that I had based on ego and its relationship to training. So anyway, thanks for listening. I appreciate you being here. And if you have any thoughts on this and you'd love to connect, please do. You can always go on to Instagram at Vertical Playpen and you can send me a message. Or you can email podcast at highfiveadventure.org and I will respond to both of those. Okay, thanks friends. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playpen. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs>